I want to bring a little picture up here. If we have it to begin with. You probably recognize that. What is that? The road to Emmaus. Luke 24, 13, it says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. And it came to pass what while they communed together in reason, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And then he said unto them, in verse 25, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that was one Bible study that I love to be part of. There are many scriptures in the Old Testament which spoke of Christ, his birth, his miraculous ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Some say that there are over 300 prophetic references to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And it's that time of year again when our attention as Christians begins to focus on the birth of Christ. The secular world all around us may give a nod to him, but it's not the main event of their Christmas. Their attention is on other things, the shopping, the family traditions, the gatherings, the Christmas decoration, the trees, the presents under the tree, and, and, the, and that fellow called Santa Claus. But many are ignorant of the real meaning of Christmas, which we celebrate on December the 25th, which is not the real day of his birth. The Bible and the early church were not interested in the day, but with the facts surrounding the day. So in preparation for the birth of Jesus that we celebrate on the 25th, I've decided to preach a short Christmas series, three messages about the places of Christmas, the people of Christmas, and the person of Christmas. So the first one will be today, the second one will be next Sunday, and the final one will be on December 25th. Tobiah will preach on December 18th. So this message title is The Places of Christmas. You might call this the geography of Christmas, or the divine atlas of Christmas. An atlas is a collection of maps filled with places, and, and the land of Israel, and even beyond Israel, is filled with significant places. So we begin our journey on the places of Christmas all the way back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, 7, it says, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the first site we visit on the places of Christmas is an unknown location. It's called Eden, which is related to a Hebrew word meaning luxury or delightful. So the garden was a beautiful place. The word garden means an enclosure. Eastward in Eden tells us nothing because we have no point of reference. Eastward from where? We don't have enough information to locate it. And added to that fact, is the, the fact that the flood of Noah completely destroyed the Garden of Eden. 
2 Peter 3.6 says, The world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. So it was buried under the sediments of the, sediments of the, of the flood of Noah. Now, one commonly held theory places the garden in a general area near the northern end of the Persian Gulf. And here's a little map to that effect down around there. But nobody really knows because it's been erased from history. The Tigris and Euphrates River pictured in that map is not the Tigris and the Euphrates that we know of. John Morris said no one in his family would have encountered the present-day Tigris-Euphrates rivers soon after leaving the ark as their descendants migrated. They would give familiar names to the new rivers and places. But the flood completely destroyed the original topography of the earth. So Eden remains unknown to us. But what happened in Eden gave rise to the first mention of a coming Redeemer. And this is why I've listed it in my Christmas places. We know the story that Eve was deceived by the serpent, and Adam sinned in taking the forbidden fruit as well. And then everything went downhill from there. And every single person born of Adam has a sin nature. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam, what? All die. Spiritually and physically, except for the generation alive at the rapture. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, God would provide a means for mankind to be saved. And, and how would a provision for, for all men, the whole world, be made? Well, that takes us to Genesis 3.14. And the Lord said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above all beasts of the field. Upon your belly will you go, and dust will you eat all the days of your life. And then here is the first gospel proclamation called the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee, that's the serpent, and the woman Eve, and between thy seed and her seed, it, or he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, and you will bruise his heel. That's speaking of the crucifixion, the bruising of the heel. But the masculine pronoun he indicates that the fulfillment of this promise, the, the seed of a woman, would, would be a man. Would be a man. And this is the only place in the Bible where a woman is said to, to have a seed. Only men have a seed. So her seed must refer to a distant descendant of Eve. And I believe that it speaks in veiled form of the virgin birth and the person of Christ. The one born on Christmas Day would ultimately de deliver a crushing defeat to serpent, the serpent, Satan. He would crush his head. So the, the first place of Christmas was the ancient Garden of Eden. So next, next on our journey is, a, is a, the city of Ur in southern Mesopotamia. According to biblical chronology, Abraham was born around 2100 B.C. in Ur. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says Ur of the Chaldees, now known as Tel Mughair, which means the Mound of Bitumen, lies 140 miles south of the ancient site of Babylon, and 150 miles northwest of the Persian Gulf. Now, that location is disputed, like so many archaeological sites are disputed. But we have some clues in Scripture. Jeremiah 25, 12 says, It comes to pass 
When 70 years are accomplished, he's referring to the deportation of Israel, the Babylonian captivity, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. So he places the, the land of the Chaldeans near Babylon, the ancient land of Babylon. Genesis fifteen seven, And he said unto him, that's Abraham, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. There are 40 Old Testament references in the Bible to Abraham. He is the probably most prominent of all the patriarchs. In Acts chapter 7, Steve is, Stephen is giving his speech to those who eventually would kill him. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And then God said, Stephen says, told him, Depart from your country, your relatives, and come into the land that I will show you. And Abraham went forth, not knowing where he was even going. He went out by faith. But Genesis 12.1, you're, you're all should be familiar with the great covenant that God made to Abraham at that time. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, I believe before he journeyed to Haran, Get thee out of thy country, from your kindred and from your father's house, into a land that I will show you, and I will make thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And here it is. Here's the key. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken, and Lot with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And God gave Abraham great promises there in the Abrahamic covenant, which is an unconditional covenant. We know that from Genesis 15. Only God passed through the, the animal pieces, signifying that he would fulfill the covenant. But he gave Abraham individual promises. He gave national promises to, to Abraham. And then he gave that universal promise that through Abraham's seed, the whole world would be blessed. That promise became the focal point of Bible history. As God would use the chosen people of Israel to bring Christ into the world. To all nations. To all nations. In thee will all the, all the nations of the world be blessed. And it's no wonder that we find in Revelation 5, 9, the, the elders and singing a new song there in heaven, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, speaking of Jesus, and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations. The whole world was blessed by that covenant through Abraham. And you know, it's interesting, and you might want to mark, not, not mark this down, that God blessed Abraham to be a blessing to others. And when God blesses us, it's not just for our sake alone. He intends that blessing that we have to be shared with others. And there's no greater blessing than what? The gospel of your salvation. And that's why we are to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ and bless others with that good news. So the next stop on this journey of Christmas places from Eden to Ur the Chaldees 
we find ourselves in Egypt, in Egypt. At the end of the patriarch Jacob's life, God called him to Egypt. And that took place in Genesis chapter 46. And let me read for you. It says in Genesis 46, 1, And Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke unto Israel in the visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. And then these significant words, Fear not to go down into Egypt. For I will there make of thee a great nation. And let me remind you this morning that sometimes the things we fear end up to be a great blessing. Fear not to go down into Egypt because I have a great blessing in store there for you. And it says then that the sons of Jacob, Jacob which were born to him in Egypt were two souls. All the souls of the house of Jacob which came to Egypt were threescore and ten. Seventy people in all. Now think about this. Jacob was 130 years old when he went to Egypt. And when, when the scripture says that when Jacob went there, it says twice in chapter 47 that he blessed Pharaoh. The things we fear end up being a blessing not only to ourselves sometimes but to others. And this tells me something that's really important. 130 years old, going to, a, to, a, to an unfamiliar place, we can still be a blessing to others in our later years of life, even in unfamiliar circumstances that we might fear. Listen, if God moves you, and you're sure God is moving you, go. God has something in store for you. And it says in Genesis 47, 28, that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. And the time drew near that Israel or Jacob was, must die. It is appointed unto men what? Once to die. We can't escape that. But in Genesis, 40, Genesis 49, Jacob delivers some of the greatest prophetic words found in Scripture to his sons. And to their descendants. And here's, here's the verse that I've been trying to get to. Genesis 49.10. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who will rouse him up? Thou shalt not depart from Judah. Nor lawgiver from between his fate. Until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The scepter, I may have missed that word, shall not depart from Judah. The NASB translates it this way, Genesis 49.10. The scepter, which is the right to rule, will not depart from the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The word, the word Shiloh means whose it is. In other words, the right to rule is rightfully Jesus. Jesus is right. The Messiah who had the right to the scepter would come from the line of Abraham, 
Isaac, Jacob, and the tribe of Judah. God is narrowing it down. It's a wonderful promise. So from there, in Egypt, we go to the city of David. 2 Samuel 7, 1 says, And it came to pass when the king, that is David, sat in his house, the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. It's nice to enjoy seasons of rest, right? But they're far and few between in life. I can assure you of that. Life is almost a constant battle of one sort or another, dealing with one thing or another. Sometimes even enemies, people who oppose us. So God gave him rest in 2 Samuel 7. But if you, jumped, if you went, were to go back to 2 Samuel 5, 7, there were battles going on. And it says that David took the stronghold, the fortress mean, of Zion. The same is the city of David. Well, what is the city of David, the fortress of Zion? It's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So we find ourselves now heading toward that Christmas moment in Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, the phrase city of David is used of Jerusalem 45 times. In the New Testament, the city of David is found twice, but in the New Testament, it refers to Bethlehem, where David was born. Where David was born. Now, watch this promise. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the, the covenant that God makes with David. Like, like the Abrahamic covenant, this is one of the great covenants of the Bible. And he says, And when thy days be fulfilled and you will sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, who shall proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, an immediate heir was who? King who? Solomon. But the greater son of Solomon, the greater son of David, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government, the right to rule, the scepter shall be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And in that unconditional covenant that God made with David, he promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne and would rule Israel forever. And the Davidic covenant is the bright and ultimate hope of Israel. The hope that someday, in the fullness of time, after the the dark night of their souls and the trials of their nation, The Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in His wings. And He did. Malachi 5, 2. There's a story of a woman who was just working her way through the crowd. Remember the story? And she became somewhat of a nuisance, but she persisted in her faith because she said, if only I touch the hem of His garment, I will be healed And the hem of his garment, she knew well what that was. It was the healing in his wings, the promise of Malachi. So she made her way to Jesus. The places of Christmas has taken us from Eden to Mesopotamia, to Egypt, to Jerusalem, the city of David by conquest, and next on our journey to Bethlehem, David's place of birth. 
Micah 5, 2, But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. What a remarkable, remarkable prophetic word. Bethlehem means what? House of bread. And it's only fitting that the bread of life would be born in the house of bread. In little obscure Bethlehem. Micah's prophecy was given just before 700 B.C. Justin Martyr in 150 A.D. and Origen in 248 wrote that Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem. Who would have ever imagined? You know, later on they said of Jesus and that he was, you know, a Nazarene and the, the skeptic. Can any good come out of Nazareth, right? And I'm sure the same thought was, could, can any good come out of, of Bethlehem? Can God make something good out of insignificant things? Yes. Maybe you feel that your life is insignificant. You're still trying to find your way. Think of Bethlehem. The insignificance of Bethlehem. And who chose? Who chose Bethlehem as the birthplace of Christ? God. Despise not the day, the Bible tells us, of small things. You know, your life has significance. Your life has significance. You were made in the image of God. God has a purpose and a plan for you. He may take you to places you've never imagined. He may do things in your life that you never thought could ever be done. Trust him all along the way. One of the fragments found in the Dead Sea, the caves of the Dead Sea, dated at 125 B.C., 125 years before Jesus, contain that prophecy of Micah. How did Micah know this? How did the other prophets know about all those future events? Isaiah 44, 8 says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Lord, help me to learn that lesson. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have I not told thee from that time, and have I not declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Who knows the end from the beginning? But God. But God. Now, biblical scholars have noted three significant truths in the prophecy of Bethlehem. Number one, Micah signals out the place where the Messiah would be born. And it's very specific. He says, Bethlehem in Judah. There were two Bethlehems. One in the north, in the tribal territory of Zebulun, lower Galilee, and the other was the territory of Benjamin, about seven, eight miles north of Jerusalem, the Judean hills. And it was there where Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. And that's the Bethlehem that Michael was talking about. So Michael signals out the place where the Messiah would be born. Secondly, Micah describes the purpose for the Messiah. He would be ruler in Israel. You know, brothers and sisters, the Bible was telling me yesterday, you know, the, the fabric of our culture, our country, 
is being shredded apart. The fabric of the world is being torn apart. And no one can sew it back together. No man can fix it at all. But there will be a ruler in Israel. There is a day coming when the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, will sit on the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of David forever and he will reign on this earth for 1,000 years preparatory to the final consummation of all things and the eternal kingdom of God. He shall be great, the angel said to Mary. He shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Micah signaled out the place where Jesus would be born. Micah signaled out the purpose, the purpose for the Messiah being born. And then finally in that prophecy, Micah described the person of the Messiah. He was from old from everlasting. You know, John begins his gospel with the eternality of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos. Feinberg says, the phases of this text in Micah are the strongest possible statement, phrases, strongest possible statement of infinite duration in the Hebrew language. The pre-existence of the Messiah is being taught there in Micah 5 too, as well as his active participation in ancient times in the purposes of God. Jesus was not a created being. He is the eternal God. Don't let anyone ever tell you different. John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He, Jesus was speaking to his the those who opposed them, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, You're not 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, Before Abraham was, Ego me, I am. Eternal existence. The eternal God. Malik said through a series of oracles, if you read the book of Micah, if you haven't read it lately, read it. It's really an exciting book. But he says, through a series of three oracles, Micah indicts Israel, and especially Judah, of covenant disloyalty, which would bring devastation upon them, and certainly upon Jerusalem. But he also proclaims later on that, that Yahweh, God, will one day save them. He will judge their enemies, and there would be one who would shepherd them as, as their king their king shepherd. And you know, that, that, that moves on from Micah 5 2, to Micah 5 3, where it says, Therefore he will give them up until the time that she which travails has brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren will return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Then he will be great to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't have time to explain this, but let me just point out to you what Micah was saying. In Micah 5.2, the prophecy of Christ's birth. 
But verse 3 there points to an interval of time before the king would come and set up his kingdom. And during that time, his people, Israel, would be an oppressed people. And they have always been an oppressed people. It's a time when they refuse to acknowledge the king who came to Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. They are in unbelief. The nation is unbelief. Yes, Jews are being saved. Thank God for everyone. But the nation as a whole is in unbelief. So this is a picture then of Messiah's first coming, Micah 5.2, followed by an unstated gap interval of time, now over 2,000 years before he will return and establish his kingdom on earth and shepherd his people, Israel. And at that time, then, then, and only then can we rightfully sing joy to the world, the Lord has come. It's not a Christmas song. It's a song about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth resound. How's it go? Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior, what? Reigns. Let men their songs employ. He rules the world with truth and grace. Not now. Not now. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's all future. Even so, Lord Jesus, come, right? Now, it's not wrong to sing joy to the world at Christmas, right? But just bear in mind that uh, there is no real joy in the world yet. We have the joy of our salvation, so we could sing that. But the world's still in darkness, and it needs, it needs salvation. So the last stop then from Bethlehem is Egypt again. Matthew 2, one says, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. I don't think that star was some astronomical phenomena. People have judged it, you know, and guessed it to be that and said that it is. But they said, we've seen a star in the east and we're come to worship him. Now let me read you, continuing on in Matthew 2. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ was to be born. And they said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee will come a governor that will rule my people Israel, a ruler. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, inquired of them diligently, What time has the star appeared? And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go, search diligently for the young child. And when you found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. No, no. He did not want to worship him. He was a wicked man. And it says, when they had heard the king, they departed. And now notice, notice, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it stood over where the young child was. Right over the house, the place of his birth, 
And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Many, many Bible teachers say, I believe that the star was the Shekinah glory of God that guided them along their way. And it says, and when they were come into the house, so this is sometime after the birth, months afterwards, the Magi came. The major scene is incorrect. They came into the house where they saw the young child with Mary his mother and he fell down and they worshipped him and they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and, and myrrh. And then it says, being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into another country, another way. And when they were going, the Bible says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and be there until I bring you word for Herod will sink the young child to destroy him. And the scripture says when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and he departed into Egypt. And he stayed there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet that's in the book of Hosea saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. That's an amazing prophecy. Now, now in the context, it's referring back to what God did in bringing the nation of Israel out of the bond of Egypt. Israel was, was viewed as God's son, and he brought them out of Egypt. But the twofold prophetic significance here is amazing. Out of Egypt have I called my son. So he would be born in Bethlehem, and he would go to Egypt, and God would call him out of Egypt back to the land of Israel. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth, and he sent forth, and he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem. And in all the coasts thereof, from two years older and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, the land of promise, the land of blessing. For they are dead who sought the young child's life. And he arose, and and we marvel at the obedience of Joseph all along the way. He arose and he took the young child and his mother and he came into the land of Israel. So he came out of Egypt and he went to Nazareth in Galilee. And then when Jesus was starting his ministry, he made his hometown in Capernaum. Capernaum. So God had worked in all the places that I mentioned. In Eden, an unknown location, but known to God for sure in Ur of the Chaldees, calling one man out of that that place, a place filled with idolatry. Abraham's father worshipped the moon gods. Out of Ur to Egypt, where Jacob was, where God told him, don't fear to go there, because I have a great blessing in store for you. And then to the city of David, Jerusalem, And that great covenant promise made to David that an heir of years will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And then to to Bethlehem, lowly Bethlehem, 
were the, the babe that, that Mary held in her arms in swaddling clothes was the ruler from everlasting. Amazing. Amazing. God did all of that to bring us our, our Savior. So think about this. Even in the geography of the world, and I don't know how many of you students love or hate geography, even in the geography of the world, God was at work. And God is at work. God is at work. And I just want to tell you in closing that he is at work in the places where life takes us. God is at work in the circumstances of our life. The place that you find yourself right now, good or bad, easy or difficult, God, the sovereign God of history, the sovereign God of geography, is at work to reveal his love to us. Just as he revealed his love to us in the places of Christmas, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this little word this morning, just a reminder, just a snapshot of some of the places, certainly not all of them, where you have worked in carrying out your promise to bring forth a redeemer for fallen men. Thank you for the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And may that thought be upon our hearts and minds as we partake of the bread and the cup this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.